0: AI can come and make people lose their jobs, make people feel unsafe. How do you protect people now? One in the same mind, and you should intuit my soul without me saying. <laughs> how, will, how will I share my role with this autonomous agent?
1: The classic, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. What you ask it is exactly what you'll do. Yeah. The challenge is that we, we like to adopt and grow things and leave other things behind.
0: How should we just approach that in terms of conclusion? How should organizations prepare to adopt AI so that they have a change in their workplace? Welcome back to Mind and Machine Africa, Unlocking the Potential of AI in Africa. Today's guest is Somet, Africa's OKS
1: developer. Hi Somet. Hi, hi, Mishin. thank you so much. Um, so I like to call myself Africa's OKS developer because I think I spent a lot of my time working with developers uh, and startups Um, however code is not something that i enjoy doing so i'm i might i'm not that bad off Um, but i've had the pleasure of over the last about 10 years uh, working with some of the world's largest organizations i've had the pleasure to work with google microsoft and a number of startups across the continent so that's thus africa's okay as developer yeah
0: It's great to finally have the OKS developer (laughs) on the show. So today we are discussing AI and the workplace. Now we've seen how the Industrial Revolution, when it came about, people sort of helped build cities around factories, and there's all this, a lot of labor, and then it also created this opportunity for people to have this batched set of leaves where you get leave defined either 14 days or long periods of leave, and now the holidays came to be a thing, throughout that. Uh, then we saw computers coming in uh, and along with the internet and every every office desk had a computer and everybody work, works in these large skyscrapers. Uh, away from COVID, then we saw the workplace change after COVID where it was remote and now another shift in the workplace is coming through AI. What does that look like?
1: Um, it's actually quite interesting. So I think a lot of people are calling them, and a lot of little pieces of AI that are supporting people's day-to-day technologies are now being called co-pilots, um, because I think there was this uh, narrative and idea that you know technology and AI is coming to take away all our jobs, uh, and, and you know a lot of people don't realize this, but AI has actually created a lot more newer industries than the jobs they've taken away, and that has been sort of the thing ever since, um, I think ever since the revolution, the industrial revolution. So there were jobs that existed back in the day that don't exist anymore. Um, and so sort of that's where technology is going. It's not coming to replace jobs. However, it's coming to complement the things that we do every day. So a lot of people are calling them co-pilots. You know, just like a co-pilot on an aircraft, you sit there with me and you assist me in the work that I do. As Africa's OKS okay developer used GitHub Copilot. <laughs> um, I actually had the pleasure of uh, testing it out yeah. way before it went out public. Um, it's quite an interesting piece of technology. However, again, yeah. I am not the biggest fan of code. Yeah. So I've had the pleasure of toying around with other copilots, yeah. um, um, you know, different technologies like Office 365. So, um, you know, th- uh, technologies that um you know help you do interesting things that you do every day so uh, a piece of technology that will help you draft that long email that you're like i'm not as creative as i should be yeah. so let me get a copilot to help me draft this yeah. in a in a more structured way than i would top of mind
0: i think with the copilots coming on this ai tools as you're calling them copilots i see there's less less work that as in you do more work in your in your eight to nine hours that people normally spend within their office hours. If we're going to get work done faster, should we then shorten our work hours? Because it's just there's only so much work you can do in one day, and if you do that work in five hours or three hours, and you can't start tomorrow's work until tomorrow, what's the why still sit in the office?
1: Well, I I like to look at it this way. So instead of sort of shortening our work hours, we end up doing a lot of repetitive work on a daily basis. You know, you're writing this report every day, you're doing this other thing every day. And so I feel like technology will come in to sort of reduce or take over those very repetitive tasks. And then what it does, it then frees you up to think about more interesting and more strategic things. In fact, I was asking a few of my developer friends the other day, do your teams spend their time fixing bugs or thinking about how to create new experiences for your customers? So we find that in our daily lives we're doing so many repetitive tasks that I think technology can automate and, and that way it frees us to do a lot more things. It then frees us to start thinking about more creative ways to work.
0: I would like a three-hour workday with enough co-pilots. <laughs> Don't I <would>. we all? <laughs> <laughs> i have always saying uh, if I could get an AI to be a Chief Information Security Officer and I just go to the beach and relax. Mine is just to make critical decisions when when services are down or there's a cyber attack but it's there it does the work i get the paycheck
1: (laughs) i think it will take quite a long time before we get to a point where you know you can have a piece of air that will sit there and completely replace you um i think it'll just sit there and compliment um, human beings because i think there's still a lot of human input that is needed in the work that we do today in the different things that we do today so i think it will be a long time by the time we get to that point and i know a lot of people have seen it in movies and they think oh my god you know it'll be an interesting thing um but think about it if you had and i think one of the things that drives us every day is our ability to do creative and interesting things so imagine if that's taken away from you have you been on holiday and you sit there and you're like I feel like I should have my laptop here. Yeah, I feel like I should be doing a lot more. Yeah. So I would actually still maintain my
0: eight <laughs> my hour workday. So, speaking about uh, how this will affect people, and if you now look at how it's going to affect organizations, is now organizations can buy AI tools for certain tasks which actually could replace certain uh, workers. There are those people who, unfortunately, they, they may lose their jobs completely to AI, those who actually doing a lot of all the, only this repetitive work. And so they have to scale up and change. But at the same time, the organization now has reduced its cost on people. Now, I look at it and I'm like, should organizations pay tax for, for AI tools because now this is free labor? You're, just paying, you're paying a license, free labor, your human cost has gone down. And if you're gonna pay tax for that, should then governments have universal pay for
1: people? Yeah, I think you, you touched on a very interesting topic when it comes to money. Um, so on one side, there is, of course, a very clear skills element that plays about when you think about AI. Um, because um, if you look at most of this generative AI, um, you know, the Dalis of this was the chat GPTs, um, you know, we can't just sit there and tell this machine, hey, do this. And somehow, miraculously, it's supposed to figure out um, you know, how to work. So you start to see interesting new jobs like what are called um, prompt engineers start to exist. You know, these are categories of jobs that never existed even three, four, five years ago, right? And so that means there is also still a level of skill that needs to come up. And so a lot of people are now trying to figure out, okay, where can we go learn how to prompt these technologies to give the best output? Because there's a world of difference between telling, let's say chat GPT, hey, draft me an article about AI in the workplace today. And somebody will sit down and actually prompt it and give it parameters that it will look at to contextually give you the right information. Because these are large learning models, language models. And so what you put in the the classic, you know, garbage in in, garbage, out. what you ask it is exactly what you'll do. And I think that's where human beings will always surpass technology. We have the innate ability to consume a lot of information and infer context. Technology is not that good at inferring context. Not yet,
0: there. Uh, not, yet there. not yet, there. I was actually reading. There two papers I'm. Re, I was reading. One is on the theory, the theory of mind, uh, which speaks to how, how, A, how we can try and get AI there. And the other one was on, train, instead of training AI, the large language models. Uh, for example, ChatGPT was trained on text. Uh, Google's latest one, I don't know if it's already out, is being trained on dialogue and there's, there are papers being written about training them now on semantics so that it's it's able to infer because humans actually the theory of when you look at the theory of mind you, you read that humans at the stage they're at you're able to look at someone and collect information just by looking at them you can say okay this person is seated in a threatening manner this person is sitting in a friendly manner and they haven't said anything it's just you looking at them and you can actually have people say they're talking in their minds that happens in humans at a scale that even our cl- the closest intelligent animals are not anywhere near us. There, so there is some way for those tools to go, but it will be so great to see them there. Because we have seen like people try to use like AI write scripts for movies. People using AI right now like in gaming, using AI to build to help you build faster. So right now it's a tool to help us build faster. So, the work, work, so now there's more work being produced, so there's more output for organizations, which is good. But then at the same time, I always have that fear that we are creating new jobs, which are creative jobs or prompting jobs. Those prompting jobs may go away when we finally have autonomous AI and we start saying, oh, ChatGPT is just a tool, it's not really AI. These autonomous things here, now these are the real thing. And now, how will, how will I share my role with this autonomous agent? Because now people will be forced to put human-in-the-middle interventions just to keep your jobs.
1: Um, I dare say I think it will take a lot of time before we get anywhere close to there. Will you still be alive? Um, maybe not. Maybe we'll live <laughs> to see that world. Uh, you know, but I guess technology changes in ways in which we don't anticipate. If you yeah. think about where we are today, you look at the generative technologies, Um, how fast it's grown in the last two, three years versus imagine five years ago and the change of technology in five years. So um, we might be surprised that it might take a completely different tangent. if you think about human beings and sort of the way we work and remember as a child you know if you're playing football there's an element of you that keeps on going ha i'm going to kick this ball into that goal and 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 inherently you say that at the back of your head and that's yourself training yourself into how do i speak how do i do xyz so i think as human beings we've had the pleasure of Learning models in our brains yeah. from childhood, yeah. and that takes years and context. That's why, I, yeah. you know, I can sit in the room with you and infer a lot of things yeah. because I've been doing it without knowing, in yeah. fact, unconsciously from the minute I was born, absorbing yeah. a lot of information. Yeah. And so I feel, I think, one of the more beautiful and more powerful AIs that exist in the US world yeah. is a human brain.
0: True. Actually, there's an article I was reading. I don't remember the title where. The hypothesis—I don't think it's fully proven, or it's yet. I'd say it's not fully proven—that the human brain actually has infinite capacity. The issue that we have is the retrieval of all the information we get. Apparently, gets stored. The retrieval is the issue. So, imagine now having AI to support you with, for example, the Neuralink from Elon from Elon Musk's thing on that company, Neuralink. Yeah. So, having that not for additional storage, but to help you retrieve. And you have infinite capacity. Meaning, you could just sit down, bored as you are, just look at a book, flip the next page, look at it, flip the, everybody read in the book, and then the neural link will help you retrieve whatever, how it's stored.
1: You know, that's, I mean, that's
0: super intelligent. Trying mate. to
1: go deep into <laughs> psychology and human behavior. Yeah. One of the interesting things I have learned about human beings is we have an inherent inhibitor. So if you think about the way we operate every day, you know, you go somewhere and you're like, ha, maybe I shouldn't do this thing. And you do it so unconsciously without realizing. But in a lot of the worlds that we live in and our behaviors, we find ourselves as human beings as something innately in us that will always limit ourselves. However, um, there is a group of individuals in this world who don't have those limitations. Um, So if you think about people who have Asperger's syndrome, Um, because their brain lacks the ability to process normal social cues they don't have inhibitors and so they they will look at a problem and break it down in a way where the normal human being will not because you know you look at a problem in your your brain naturally will be like maybe I can't do this there's always that you know voice in your head that will tell you maybe I can't do this or I can't go there or I can't do this there's something in us that either whether it's based on, you know, we learned this from experience from our childhoods, yeah. um, but people with Asperger's syndrome have zero limitations. So somebody will look at a problem and think about how do I break this down into the smallest unit and solve for whatever I need to. Um, and thus, we have some of the most interesting inventions. So if you think about people like Nikola Tesla, the fact that he's able to, you know, build a, a generator in his brain without writing anything down those are brilliant human beings. Yeah. so human nature has a very interesting um way in which it works but i guess let's go back to a topic of how this will change the world yeah um so i think in if you think about this day and age um, you know a lot of businesses are worried about um you know either losing workforce or you know technology replacing us i think there is still an avenue where, you know, we can embrace these technologies and change the way we work and even how we engage with each other. So I think COVID was a good lesson to teach us about, you know, how do we work remotely? So I tell a fun story, you know, when a lot of people experience remote working in the height of COVID, I feel like my job has always been remote, right? And having the ability to have managers in multiple countries, in fact, there is a colleague that I worked with for almost four years without ever meeting them in person. And the day we met, we're like, ha, it's like we've been working together. And and so there's a lot of people who will transition into a new way of working. But unfortunately, what tends to happen is we carry around all our traditional processes, throw them online and we're like, yes, digitized." digitize. Yeah. And then we think, oh, my God, yes, now we're, we're fully remote. So. AI and all these technologies were fundamentally and is fundamentally changing how we work. So all of a sudden, you know, schools have to think about how do I enable people to learn remotely? How do I enable students to be able to attend classes without being there in person? Because I think in a lot of the traditional ways in which our businesses are designed is the physical presence of being there. So I think that will fundamentally change.
0: I'd love to see that change. I think during COVID, and it just speaks to what you said, we usually just take our process, we throw technology on it. Because if you look at the schools, this Zoom learning or such, it was just so crazy. To me, it felt like a teacher would go into the classroom, get 30 laptops, turn them on, tell the kids, turn on your cameras, and each kid is connected to one laptop, and then he just has faces to teach. Because it feels like they just took that, through it there they, they should have of course done some to 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 facilitate it to to have more value ai fortunately is coming in 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 a way that we know the value it can bring and now we just try to try figure out the right and the safe way to plug it in do you think ai can create unsafe work work environments
1: oh definitely um as i said earlier you know i think ai is based on the, the very age-old concept of garbage in garbage out and so if at the beginning, at the developer level, we don't put in considerations, you know, ethical considerations into how we design these AI. What tends to happen is you start to create technologies with either inherent biases um, or, um, you know, it will cause a lot of problems. So a good example is there's a piece of um, AI that was designed um, around identifying males versus females. And so for the longest time, it was very good at doing that in North America, yeah. but you know, throw it in another context of a completely different market, like, you know, uh, let's say Philippines or Africa, it completely loses, you know, it's unable yeah. to do its job. And so, you know, developers were always trying to figure out why, you know, why is this happening? Yeah. And one of the things they realized is, whoever designed this AI had designed it around identifying how it would identify a female is not in physical features. Yeah. It was based on whether the person has makeup or not. and so imagine you've built an entire model around whether somebody has makeup or not and now you look at the context of emerging markets first of all the cost of makeup is Mm -hmm. ridiculous Um, and and so not many people in Africa or in uh, let's say in in emerging markets spend a lot of I mean, there's a crop who do but very few people actually spend money on makeup and so if you're training a model to identify somebody based on makeup then already throws off an entire population Um, and now you start to create biases. And that's just easily facial recognition with makeup on. I imagine if this is a piece of technology that decides the fate of someone. Let's say a judge is sitting in a court and deciding somebody's case using AI based you know, you get a large data set of someone's case and you're using AI to determine whether this person is guilty or not. And there's inherent biases in there you have a lot more damage yeah. that's going to be caused in the ripple effect downstream um, than, than, you know, you, people would anticipate. And so the age-old question becomes, you know, in that entire process, who do you hold responsible? What safeguards do you put in place at the early stages to make sure that that doesn't happen? So it, it will, if not built well, it will create very funny work environments.
0: I actually remember there was, I was reading about a U.S. state that had employed a tool to look for fraud. People claim money from the state. And the model was built, tested, but on test data. They put it on live, 94% fail rate. And it ran for several years. So there are people who were denied uh, funding, uh, finance, I guess, the welfare. Those ones who applied, or they were told, oh, this is a fraudulent thing, and families and marriages get broken. That damage is permanent to these individuals. It's either you, you either you end up losing your job or something happens. The company, either the, your, the company is your employer, or maybe even the company that's behind the AI tool, only pays a fine. You, I think, do we first put in rules to prevent, because unfortunately damage will always happen, and when damage happens, it's mostly irreversible to people. As in, you look at example of deepfakes. So we decide let's use AI to make a Wakanda for Kenya movie, and we decided to use a popular Kenyan celebrity. And the movie tanks; it becomes horrible. The person becomes a laughing stock. That's that's ruined that person's image. And we've seen deepfakes which people have used for more abusive forms, and then the service is taken down or some controls are put so that it doesn't do that. But that damage has been done and it's almost irreversible. And even the name fake yeah. doesn't, <laughs> doesn't take away the actual real damage. So how will organizations sit down and be like, as much as we need to also, organizations will safeguard themselves. I'm sure they're coming up with things for insurance for AI, in case your AI makes a, a bad mistake or there's a, if they've been paying your premiums, we've got you covered. But now what about the actual employees at work? Because AI can come and make people lose their jobs, make people feel unsafe. How do you protect people now?
1: So I think there is a, An interesting book uh, by a lady, a gentleman called Brad Smith, called Tools and Weapons. And, you know, he talks about um, how, you know, we we create tools to do different things that can easily be turned into weapons. So let's take the rudimentary example of a broomstick. I can use a broomstick to clean a house. I can also use it to beat someone up, right, (laughs) if you think about it. Uh, And so same thing with technology. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are creating technology with the right intentions in mind. So, you know, creating technologies that will help, um, you know, solve for interesting problems. However, there is a crop of human beings that will also turn these into weapons. So think about people who can create bio weapons out of um, or whatever drug that was created to solve for a disease. Right. So these things inherently will happen. I think what would be critical is one, creating those safeguards at the early on, but also creating Accountability and responsibility at the highest level. So, if you think about, let's take the example of self—not self-driving cars, but you know, cars that use technology to detect, you know, uh, anti-collision systems. Yeah. So, it's driving down this road, and it has to decide. And you know, there's a dog and an old grandma in the middle of the road. You know which direction do you yeah. go if you cannot stop yeah. so you know what, how is it gonna make that decision and what biases is it gonna use but then also who do you hold responsible for that decision because yeah. if it's me driving yeah. then I as a driver gets held responsible yeah. for it if it's an AI that's deciding whether to hit someone or not then who do you hold responsible I think inherently you have to hold that level of responsibility at the highest level in in such organizations and that starts with the CEO all the way downwards and so if you create an environment um, and accountability and responsibility in an organization at the highest level and create structures where that trickles all the way down then i think then you're able to capture these um you know these these eventualities early on now i mean we can't completely um eradicate them i mean yeah. i wish we could 100 percent but you know the things just like human beings we make mistakes yeah. these mistakes will happen we we'll have a bad damage but at least we can reduce the amount of damage it has
0: yeah. yeah interesting about that I think it's called the trolley the trolley challenge where you have to choose what to hit I was reading about that and they said actually it's it's fundamentally flawed because it only works when you're in that situation if you are out of that situation and you're told to choose you're now you know looking as in now you know you're a spectator. But when you're in that situation, is the only time that that situation actually matters. So ChatGPT, when it launched, to got to fastest app to 100 million users. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people, I use it myself, and a lot of people sit down, log in, either on GPT-4, GPT-3.5, and they're there using it to work. Samsung, unfortunately, their developers were putting their own code into chat gpt asking for help yeah. find bugs help fix this and that information leaked now organizations have just realized oh, we got, you know, all these free online tools that we can use but at a cost you could lose your ip you could expose customer data what safeguards should should organizations put within their workplace so that we don't just go off selling because this data will be used to train these models again you could lose your ip you could even lose it to a third party uh, if you, if maybe the solution maybe sits right before uh, you interface with ChatGPT. GPT.
1: So contrary to popular belief, um, the technology to be able to do, get that level of control actually exists today. The challenge for a lot of organizations in is how they set it up. Um, and especially if you look at this side of the world, one of the things we got very, very used to is I buy a piece of technology to solve a problem and and I inherently expect it to work the way I think it should work, not the way it's designed. Um, So I've had the pleasure of working in organizations where they have levels of structure. And so I I came up with this very interesting theory called the triangle of three three things. So um, you can create the right process, right tools. And you have to have the right people. If any one of those three things is missing or is off, then your entire model fails. So I think if I think about technology where, you know, if it's developer teams, it, you know, there's enough technology that can go and look at, with this person's digital identity on all the pieces of technology that they integrate and work with every day, yeah. I'm able to understand what they work on every day, what they have access to, and what they shouldn't have access to. I have unfortunately seen horror stories where, you know, um, human beings tend to like to use things the way they feel like. So, a very classic example is um, the age-old question of when Zoom became a whole thing during COVID. Yeah. Everybody expects that every other online video working tool yeah. should work the same way as Zoom, yeah. right? And so, when you get meet people who are using things like. Um, microsoft teams as an example yeah. they inherently expect it to work like nice. teams and they will do everything in their power to tweak it to try and make it work like teams yeah. um however we forget to take technology understand how it's built how it's designed and, and use it the way it's designed or make adjustments to that so there's a there's that human nature where you know you, you can build the best processes you can build the best tooling you don't have the right people, it becomes a problem. And that's where scaling becomes uh, critical. So how do you create a culture, process, technology to help people transition into using technology the way it's designed to? Sometimes you have to create things that will limit what people can do and create guidance for how they do it. I feel like human beings left to their own vices. I was telling um, a founder the other day, um, within your business, you have to give your employees guidance on how they do things. Otherwise left to their own vices, people will create their own processes. And I think that's the, the failure in which when you see all these employees and engineers using ChatGPT is, because no one gave them a direction. Yeah. There's this thing called ChatGPT that's been launched and within your organization, because most people don't understand it, everybody just ignores it. Yeah. And so you, the engineer who's curious, you want to try it out, we like, oh, this can solve a problem. Yeah. But because no one gave you guidance within the context of your company and, how do you use this thing? You know, what are the repercussions? You know, what are the safeguards that you need to? Then things like that start to end up happening. So I think the onus is in organization leaders looking at how do you create a culture, people's uh, process tooling to support your employees into adopting these new technology in a way that works for them, rather than, and, and these are two strategies that people took. Either you completely ignore this new piece of technology or you lock down everything so much that people now start finding ways around it. I'll say, never underestimate the the mind of a common man. They will always find a way around. Yeah,
0: true. I actually remember uh, we did a survey uh, and we were asking how many organizations are using ChatGPT. And you could see people were hesitant to put their hands up. And then you ask, how many of you are afraid of losing data and you've blocked ChatGPT? their hands that went up. The guys were like, we are using, but have you blocked? So, I'm like, so you've blocked for your organization, but the tech team is using ChatGPT. And I'm wondering, okay, it also speaks to processes or what the technology is built for. The ChatGPT that people use uh, when you log into, when they use that for the, the LLM itself, for me, it's a research tool. Everything that goes into that, they will re- reuse. So you really have to now think about removing personal data. So that speaks now to processes. You have to create processes to train people. This is how you use ChatGPT in organization. This is marketing people, go have at it. Because everything you do has to end up somewhere in public screens and maybe on billboards and TVs. So it's fine. There's not, nothing confidential. They are put it there. Finance, what are you doing? Tech, what are you doing? There's a, is there a way around it? Until March, March 1st of this year, Uh, ChatGPT changed their privacy policy. Not a lot of people know that, but now your data can be private as long as you use the APIs. Now, how many organizations are going to sit down and say, it's just so much easier to tell people to register, we create a policy, give them do's and don'ts, because you're not going to hover over someone to make sure whatever the questions they're asking ChatGPT or whatever information they're using as they're prompting is not uh, confidential or restricted, you don't have that availability of time. Even if you do have uh, uh, d- d- data data loss prevention tools, I can literally just take a hard copy, type out my question because you can you know, you now can't have key loggers on everybody's machine. So and, and they have their own personal devices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll go home, home. Yeah. you just go home and ask ChatGPT that same question. Yeah. You're like, ah, the office I can't use chat GPT. I'll take this work home. Instead of spending four hours on it, I'll spend 30 right, minutes on and it. And
1: estimating the mind of a common man, you will always find ways around it, right? If you think about even the things that we do every day, you know, um, and you go to these older cake institutions where they've completely locked down this machine and you can't do anything. There's always those group of individuals who have always found a way around. And I guess that's why if you think about how many people um, you know, will attack institutions like banks, and somehow, with all the security inherently built in these companies, yeah. somehow, somewhere, someone finds a way of you know stealing money or doing things. So yeah. again, I think. It's on us on organizations to understand that, one, technology will move very fast. Yeah. Your employees and human beings are very curious. Yeah. And so if you create the right guidelines and in understanding that, you know, don't lock down everything, um, give them a guidance on this is the direction we're going, this is how we do it. I think human beings, we're, we're sometimes very good at following um, instructions, unless we feel those instructions will somehow limit us.
0: We're, we're very, you're we're to draw logical lines, very linear lines in our thought, like this will lead to that, that will lead to that. So if you give people the right process, they would follow it, essentially. I I would also say maybe when this, like, for example, chat GPT, what I've always thought organizations should do is first ask the employees, do you really need this tool, do you want to use it? If the answer is yes, okay, developers, sit down, we need an interface. So because we need to, we have the APIs, let's put up an interface. Instead of it being free, we're going to pay for it, but we have some certainty that now our data is confidential
1: yeah. Or just be create, uh, and, and just along the same lines you know create create a way in which these employees are able to leverage that technology in their day work and explain to them that hey this is this is where it comes from so like let's say you know we built this amazing new piece of tool yeah. that enables you to do this thing faster built on chat GPT yeah. and so inherently I guess not human psychology at the end of the day, I wouldn't think, hey, let me go and chat GPT because my brain already knows, oh wait, this thing uses chat GPT and my company says I can use it. Yeah. And that's what I'll use. Yeah. So I think a lot of, there's a lot of interface between technology and human psychology and how you play out scenarios where, how do you curate a, a, um, a safer environment for how your employees and businesses can experiment with technology. Yeah.
0: So a lot of companies, uh, m- especially these large institutions, of course, they don't want their data out there. And now having these l- l- large language models that you can download like from places like Hugging Face, you go there like, oh, text generator, image prompter. So you, you download them and now companies feel like, okay, now that I have this model, I can run it locally on, on some edge device for the company to use. And is that safer than the online one? Or are they still putting themselves in the same risk?
1: Um. I'd say irrespective of whatever technology, uh, you know, uh, every piece of AI, there has to be this. And I think there's this very interesting Chinese war between technical people in a company and business decision makers. And it's like, they don't want to talk to each other. However, I think there's an interesting interface. And I've had the pleasure of being in a similar role where I am technical, but then I sit with a lot of business decisions makers. So on one side, I understand the plight. If I may put it that way, the plight of developers and the things that they struggle with every day. I understand the context of the business and the needs that they have to be able to sustain the business. But finding interesting ways where these two entities can work together, as opposed to uh, how most companies are designed, where we don't understand what developers are doing, so we'll just leave them in that corner to their vices. And, you know, so now that's when you start having situations where, on one side, a company says, no, we, we want to have this thing running on an edge thing without necessarily understanding what do you even need to do that in the first place? Um, are you able to just leverage the technology in a way that makes sense for these people? So I think, um, again, I feel like a lot of things boil that down to how human beings interact with each other. Yeah. So irrespective of what technology is whether it's on edge device whether it's an isolated server on its own whether it's online you know people always find creative ways of either going around the thing that you want or um you know and sometimes we also just want to be rebellious so we'll find interesting ways i'm just going to do this because i feel like
0: i remember um, in university you couldn't access torrents and but there's a site you could go to then from that site it was i think it was a proxy you go to that site i don't forgotten the name of that site. And then from that site, you can search within that site for the sites you want to visit. And you could, then now you had access.
1: Human ingenuity. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, we, so the workplace, there's a lot of data in the workplace. And if you just focus on large language models, because I think that's that's what everybody's, that's what the tools everybody's trying to, to get a lot of work done. Hopefully the designers don't get mad that we're not touching on on the AI tools which prompt designs and everything, but that, that would come later. Uh, this data, um, I got something that I read something that really scared me. Was that 270,000 people submitted their data to Cambridge Analytica, and they were paid a dollar each. The Cambridge Analytica, from those 200, 270,000 people, got data. Of another 87, 85 million people worldwide. So you may decide as an organization that we are not gonna, we're not gonna use these AI tools. But because another organization has some form of data about you, and because they've accepted to use this tool, now your data also is out there. Because mm-hmm. I think and also it's actually similar to the how what just recently happened with Threads and Instagram, where if you want. To delete your threads account, you have to delete it sort of bundles together. so now those two products are bundled together. So now your company does business with my company. My company is we're like no, we're not putting anything on on these large language models. we don't want our data out there. And so we think we've secured ourselves. Our third parties, our partners sign up for this. They are part of the 270,000. become part of the 85 million without even knowing it. Yeah. So should we just accept that as long as you have a relationship with someone else or organizations have a relationship with other organizations, their data is going to be out there. So the question is, the data that you don't have, that you've given these third parties, can you start now running around trying to find it and fix it? Because there could be, that example of Cambridge Analytica scared me so much, because you could imagine now there could be a company that's very restricted in their business and one of the companies that they work with very closely will be very public about their business. And the next thing you know, because these guys have put their data uh, on the internet and their data includes part of your data. And now you have you have security issues now to deal with it. Privacy and everything else. Yeah, if
1: you think about it, um, and alluding to back to what I said earlier, the challenge is that we we like to adopt and grow things and leave other things behind. So if you think about how, um, businesses transitioned, you know, to using all these digital tools, we still, and a good, uh, someone made the argument of, we are still using laws and boundaries and protections that were built in the days of the typewriter in the days of modern AI. So, we assume that the boundary of what technologies, because remember back in the day when you know we were still running on-premise servers, yeah. the boundary of security and how you protect things was the perimeter of the office that you operated in, yeah. was very physical. Yeah. Now with an entire population that's completely online, yeah. um, that technology has no boundary, yeah. you know, right? I could be sitting here and my data is spread out all across the world. And so the way you think about how to protect <coughs> information, data, has to evolve into understanding how do you do that at scale but also irrespective of where this technology sits. Because think about how many businesses buy a new piece of technology every day without inherently understanding its repercussions. So oh, I am buying X technology because my friend has a company and they're also using it. So I jump onto that queue and the next thing you know, you have a hundred different tools that do a hundred different things but have huge overlaps. And then now understanding where your data footprint looks like becomes a hot mess because somebody was just, you know, buying technology on the basis of hype. Um, people need to take time and understand that the going digital means things change. So things like digital identities becomes very critical, right? Being able to identify um, somebody's identity on a piece of technology becomes critical. Um, So I think people need to understand that, um, again, tools and weapons, not everyone has the best intentions um, and that your data will go in different places. And so it's, it's looking at, again, I think it boils down to people, culture, processes, tools. So if I build an organization where I give a clear direction of, hey, here's technologies that we use, this is why we use it, this is the repercussion it has, and that information is clear, then somebody makes that decision early on, before I, I offload my data elsewhere, I'm able to think about it. And, and you know, in the, the question that you asked, a good example of that was this interesting law called GDPR. You know, GDPR was an EU regulation to protect personal identifiable information for European citizens. And the idea, was that, you know, uh, as an EU resident or citizen, I have, let's say, the right to be forgotten. But that means if I, as an EU citizen, land in Nairobi, does that protection carry over? If I buy a SIM card from a phone provider here, do they have to adhere to GDPR? If I land in an airport and I give them my passport, do they have (laughs) to adhere to GDPR? So I guess if you look at it, and and you know, because it has far-reaching effects, uh, I think we can look at um, how to create best practices models for how um, we want to protect things in the context that we we are in that then align to what the rest of the world is doing so if you have a regulation called gdpr to protect information how do we as kenyan i think we're we're well on our way there create a regulation we do have
0: the data protection exactly
1: that also acts on the same basis but is contextually specific to us. So yeah. not, not a situation where we copy-paste and we have no idea why certain things were made. And I, <laughs> and I see that a lot in organizations where, oh, these are the guys that are doing this, so we'll copy without yeah. understanding the thinking, the rationale, the implementation behind yeah. it. So I guess the same way. I think in every organization, people need to come and, th- and think about how do you create a structure, a process around how things are done yeah. that also touches on how third parties are done. So, and I think some of the bigger companies in the world have, very, have had very good practices. So you know, if you think about companies like Unilever, the Microsofts of this world, they have very clear ways in which they work with their partners. And they, so they have clear boundaries around, hey, if we work with you as a partner and we're sharing whatever form of data, there's a certain standard that we expect of you on how you handle it. Like, we're not going to force you to to do things a certain way yeah. but there's a set standard of this is the controls that we expect you to put in place yeah. if we're going to have any third-party information shared with you and so that way it safeguards in, in this case you know personal and defi- defiable information now i've had situations where you worked on this amazing project you know and you, you're always cutting corners using sample data and you're doing all these things and then one day your head of compliance comes and says hey wait this sample data where did you get it from and like, no, scrap that thing because the, the inherent risk that that carries out there is far much more damaging. And in the world that we live in today, you know, one simple mistake can tear down an entire multinational organization. Yeah. So, I guess it's more critical for us to put those controls in place.
0: You mentioned culture, and I've seen this firsthand in terms of how AI affects a nation's culture. And so, an organization that's working on bringing ChatGPT to help them do some of their tasks. And now they're, they're wondering, this thing is supposed to be an AI. It's supposed to be pretty smart. But now it's not able to understand. And they're like, no, that's English. And, so, and actually saw this where someone prompted it with a lowercase I, Someone then prompted it with an uppercase I. With the uppercase I, it went and referred to the additional information it had been given for that organization. With the lowercase i, it went, to, it went to ChatGPT online and it was like, this is a question I've been asked with no context. Give me an answer. And all guys are like, okay, that's, no, that's not English. And so I've seen people saying like, oh, we need an, a chatbot, an assistant. We just use ChatGPT, put up an interface and you're like, it's English is different, at least for your customer base, who are going to call and they're going to ask questions where they're prepositions are missing, adjectives are jumbled up, nouns are all over the place. Yes, it may infer context, but then I've seen it hallucinate just because of capital I lowercase, I blew my mind I've seen because I've seen like, oh actually one time asked it, what was the second last thing? And what was the second to last? Those two statements are different. And now that affects the culture, because now organizations culture is Inherently, you, you can't teach that culture to the AI so that the AI works so you feel like it's working right. So organizations' cultures, I do see them changing, because I think when I saw that happening in real time, I saw people getting frustrated. They're like, it's supposed to be smart. What's wrong with this AI? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. well, your organizations' culture cannot be plugged into it and expect so to I, get the right thing
1: out. I think it's a matter of perspective. So um, I think human beings, we have um, we have a lot of op- uh, optimism in the state of technology today. So, you know, when you tell a lot of uh, generalists, you know, so if you're not in technical fields and you ask somebody their thought around technology AI assistance, yeah. because of the movies that we've watched over the years, the, the information that we read out there without necessarily finding out whether it's true or not, yeah. we have this biased way in which you think technology should be. So, if yeah. you tell somebody, you know, Siri can do X, Y, Z, or Google Assistant, all these smart assistants, their brains naturally expect that this thing should be as smart as me, that it should know. And, you know, I I think this stemmed from how um, people think uh, and the people in relationships, assume because you're in relationships should be that one in the same mind and you should intuit Basically. my soul without me saying. So kind of the same thing with technology. So we as human beings, and especially if you sit in the non-technical fields, yeah. we assume that AIs and technology should be smarter than us. However, sometimes, Um, AI's are very good at doing one thing and one thing only, and that's why I think human beings supersede. Um, But we expect it to process information the same way our brains do. So you're expecting it to inherently understand context, understand multiple aspects of the random questions you you ask, and you get weird outputs. And that's why I think there's an existence of roles like prompt engineers. Somebody who will sit down and understand that this piece of large language model will not understand everything and so I have to guide it in terms of the parameters that it needs to be able to give me the right output. Um, And it's kind of the same in human beings where um, I feel like a lot of people make decisions based on an an age-old coding concept called if-then-else, right? right. And then there are people who make decisions based on emotions. Those two are fundamentally different. And so the way we also think about technology is exactly the same way. There's people who know technology operates on if then else. Yeah. And then there's people who will operate that technology with emotions inbuilt. I expect this thing should be smarter than me. So the way you provide input it will be fundamentally very different from what it expects. So, what happens? Your output will be completely different. Yeah. So, I think it's just a matter of how um, you're getting a human being to interact with a piece of technology that's built on logic. Yeah. But we, are a combination of logic, emotions, and a million other different factors that affect us every day. Maybe today I woke up angry and I decided, why is ChatGPT not giving me the correct answer? So I guess it's just, it's the beauty of how human beings are complex. Yeah, Yeah.
0: now if you look at organizations, and I sometimes feel everybody has an unfair advantage of some kind. You could be, is AI going to be an unfair advantage for some organizations? Those who can afford it uh, obviously get very huge competitive advantage. Does it it become unfair for small organizations who now, you had a very small piece of the pie, then your larger competitor decides, ah, get these AI tools, we supercharge our business, our processes, we shoot through the roof, now the small businesses start to suffer. Is that going to happen? And I'm thinking of that because there's also a possibility, and we touched on Neuralink, and when we get to the point where you can take human intelligence and able to connect it to artificial intelligence, or to connect it to, specifically, artificial general intelligence. And we find ourselves in the realm of super intelligence. If I have the money to get that neural chip on me, I could be smart enough to run a country. I could be smart enough to run Google. But just because I had just enough money to buy the thing to make me smarter than everybody else. So there are gaps being created in their workspace. Those who use the tool, like, you're up here. I don't, the audience wants, I don't (laughs) even, it's really high up. So (laughs) I'll
1: answer it in two ways. Um, So for anyone who's trying to grasp the, um, I think there's this interesting show called uh, Black Mirror. It takes technology and and tries to show you, if we push this to the utmost extreme, what would that look like? Um, So if if you're curious about that, anyone in the audience, please go watch that show. It's a very interesting, but also keep an open mind when you're watching (laughs) it. Um, um, On the other side, I think one of the interesting things a lot of these large organizations that are building these technologies are doing is to democratize these technologies. So um, you remember back in the day where to build a simple app on a phone, you needed somebody who went through a software engineering degree, has had experience and... You know, and could write complex code. And probably build this. work on three or four models. Exactly. They have model this, phone. Or as human beings, Rings. they have these green screens with <laughs> things scrolling down like matrix. <laughs> and that was a perception of software engineers back in the day. Yeah. But if you think about today, I can build an entire app end to end without writing a single line of code. Yeah. So a lot of these technology platforms and the creators of this technology have also realized that, you know, If we inherently leave technology the way it was back in the day, we create, again, an unfair advantage. And so what they're actively trying to do is to look at how do you create experiences that then democratize these technologies and allow people to interact with them at the lowest level. So, and that's why I call myself Africa's OKS developer, because I, I will find interesting ways to avoid writing code, but to build an entire CRM, and I've actually done that before. But it's because things like low-code or no-code platforms exist. Yeah. Because somebody sat down and said, "Hey, it's maybe unfair for us to, you know, have the power of all this technology, but it's limited to only software engineers." And, because,
0: and now with all these uh, co-pilots for writing code, you just put you just describe your app. Write a few comments and just watch the code.
1: And in fact, in that is actually <coughs> possible today. So, yeah. the other day, I was watching this demo of a new technology platform where literally somebody goes onto a prompt and says, I want an app that does XYZ, and it will throw out a scaffold of mm-hmm. an app, or you can come with a spreadsheet and say, Hey, build me what you think a good app based on this spreadsheet would look like. And a co pilot would be able to go into the spreadsheet, understand the data points that you have, and spit out something close to an app and you can go tweak whatever you think is necessary and publish the app and people start using it without even understanding how code works. Yeah. And so on that side, I mean, there's still need for developers because you have to extend the capabilities and yeah. build. But I think the fact that we're able to do that today, then that means there's people who are actively looking at how do you make sure that these technologies are democratized all the way down to, to people who need it and people who don't
0: what about some okay some technologies could be democratized i, I know I'm, I, I am picking a lot on neural links because <laughs> i do see that being a very unfair advantage you could imagine your dream job you're about to go in for that interview and you realize everybody in that organization that you're going to work in has a neural the neural chip somewhere installed in their brain and so they inherently magnitudes smarter than you and you can't get it. But you're pretty smart, you're probably not the smartest people in the world, but without that, you're not that smart anymore. And that creates a very, one creates a big divide, you know, because now as long as you can get the chip, then you move up a social class in intelligence and also in wealth that you can create. And then someone else who doesn't have it stays where they are, or in fact could even be pushed further down. So you create a gap. And now that's now, that, that to me is, I think when you when you look at the workplace and you look at that i um, just to scare you because now how we always keep saying oh Africa is gonna explode with the second will be the largest uh, population on this continent in 29 30 years from now but then you look at that you're like okay but if tech becomes so expensive and it's owned by a few people especially AI then you create a very huge imbalance of unfairness. So the poor will become poorer, the rich will become richer. You create, and then just, and even just on gender, because again, that also <laughs> affects gender because access to these tools will mostly, unfortunately, be easier for men to access because technology has always, from time to time, when it starts out, creates a divide and a, and a gap and it creates it between uh, genders, races, and all this. So this small thing that could happen in a workplace could boil over across multiple workplaces and into an economy. And then I think we have an upside economy.
1: I like to look at it this way, and I'll use the analogy of a farmer. So you have on one side a farmer who's using all manner of interesting technology, something even just as simple as a tractor. And then you have a farmer who's decided I don't like this tractor thing. I am used to the ox pulled plow. And that's what I'm going to stick to. Unfortunately, we can't solve for everyone's problem in the world. Otherwise, if we all, you know, have neural link chips in our brain, then there's a huge imbalance even in society and the way we interact with each other. So I guess it's, it's human nature. We can't solve for everyone's problem. I mean, so I guess on one side, yes, AI will change how we work, but also it's, for people to now sit down and understand how do I position myself to take advantage. So if you think about somebody who held a job and they were the fastest typewriter out there, and they refused completely to understand how do you evolve into the world of computers, unfortunately, um, the society and world is not as kind to to a lot of people as people would like to think it is. So unfortunately, you'll be you'll be weeded out yeah. of the work environment. So. Inherently, that's going to happen. There's sometimes very little we can do about it. We can do a lot to try and get some balance, democratize things. But unfortunately, in the world, we can't solve for everyone's problems. Yeah. And I guess that's that's the reason why the world exists. There's you know delicate balance in the world that is created by different people who have different vast experiences of different things. So I, look, I like to look at it that way. And it's just a world balancing itself out.
0: I think the first time on this show that... I am not pro-Utopia so much. Because I was like, give everybody the technology. And then you said, it's going to be an imbalance. And I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, that Utopia is not going to be a Utopia anymore. This is the first time. It's it's nice that at least uh, my mind has been changed, shifted in a way. I'm glad to be that person. (laughs) So uh, as we conclude, I'm thinking about how organizations, because the workplace, of course, has changed. Uh, If we go back to the beginning, the industrial revolution, the are factories and scale, and scale mass production, computers and internet, COVID, now AI. COVID came out of the blue. We were not prepared for that. AI is literally at our doorsteps. We need to tidy up the house before we let it in. How should we just approach that in terms of conclusion? How should organizations prepare to adopt AI so that they have a change in their workplace? I have A very, good change, maybe yeah. a utopian change. <laughs>
1: I like how you're trying to angle to an Ethiopiapia. um I think I'll look at it I'll say it in one statement. I think businesses need to create a mindset and a culture mindset shift, but also a culture of constantly learning and not a, a mindset of know it all. A lot of businesses operate on oh we know, you can't tell us we know versus a company that are, is constantly looking at okay, how much can how much more are we constant constantly learning? And how do we create environments for our employees to constantly learn, experiment, try, uh, fail, create sandboxes that then people can, you know, try all these things. But if you create an environment where you lock people down, at some point somebody will be like, -uh, I have to get out of this box. um, But if you give people a bit of freedoms to try, experiment with guidelines, just like a small child, you know, you, you want the child to go and explore and walk around, but you give them a guide, okay, go here, go there. So I think... Um, that mindset shift that, you know, um, things will constantly change. We need to constantly learn and evolve and create that environment for our people. Because people sometimes forget your largest asset in any business is your human resource. It's the people, um, you could buy all the software in the world. You could buy all the AIs in the world. Um, if you don't have the right people, it all breaks down.
0: I like that. I think of this, this episode in particular one of the, as we close, the word people, I was like, this is an AI episode, but if it really boils down just to people. Of course, it's a workplace and people are very important and they play a huge role and they're the ones who are being affected. But for me, it feels new that we're not talking about how does the tech work? How do we police the tech? <laughs> how How is it built? How can it be replicated? We're actually talking about, oh, people. I'm not being sad when I put my hands like this. I don't know who's <laughs> going to say that. But I'm like, oh, people,
1: I'm like... That's human-centered design. Yes. Yeah, that's I'm where it like,
0: from. Yeah, but it's a workplace. It's obviously about people. So it was a good conversation about people. Yeah, it was yeah. a pleasure. It
1: was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening on this episode on AI and the workplace. If you found this interesting, please share, give us a like, uh, subscribe to the podcast on all the streaming platforms for podcasts. We'll see you next time on the next episode on Mind of Machine Africa. Thank you.